Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, this new mini-series, part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute. Welcome back to all the returning listeners and welcome first-time listeners. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Like the previous episodes, we're hoping that these conversations will attempt to unearth what the top people within high performance are doing now with a bit more time on their hands and what they're planning to do when sport returns to our lives. Alongside me once again is top sports psychologist, friend and colleague, Mr. Michael Caulfield. How is Oxfordshire this morning, Michael? It's particularly good, but uh, it's just got better because I've just discovered that our guest today, Brailsford, uh, is in the same village where Brian Clough used to live. And for me, that is the crowning moment of anything during this lockdown period so far. So I couldn't be better. Absolutely. Well, as you said, they were privileged to have one of the people I, I most enjoy speaking to and listening to in my time at Leaders, and that's team principal of Team Ineos. And our first night of the podcast, it's uh, Sir David Brailsford. Dave, how are you this morning? Good morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Happy and looking forward to having a chat. Absolutely. And what's your um, what's your working from home setup like? You said before we came on, you 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 enjoy working from home a little bit. So is it an office or is it a makeshift space or, or what are you looking at right now? No, I've um, I've got my own office, nicely sort of laid out with my uh, coffee machine on on one side, which is obviously a must. And then I built myself. This sounds ridiculous, actually, but I, I built myself like a bit of a, a wardrobe for all of my cycling kit and all of my cycling gear. So basically, I come into my office, I can whack my cycling gear on. I got all my sunglasses, my you know the helmets and shoes and everything. Off I go out on my bike, come back in, drop it all off here, and. And back to work. So it's, um, yeah, proper man cave in that respect. I guess. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. And how, how, how are you getting on? How's, how's, um, how's the situation both both at home and also with the, the kind of family at Team Ineos as well? Yeah, good, actually. I think what we do realise and what we have come to realise is as a team, we don't have a facility base. You know, we, we, we don't go to a training ground. We don't go to a stadium or a training complex every day. We work from you know, there, there are certain groups who live in, 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 in kind of a similar area. But in the main, we, we work, we go to a race, we work together, and then we have to work very much geographically dispersed. And so a lot of the time it's conference calls, it's uh, Skype calls or Zoom calls. And so really the, the way that everybody's working at the minute is relatively familiar for us. So it hasn't been that much of a change. Of course, we're not racing. But the time at home feels kind of just a bit of a ramped up business as usual, to be honest. So in that sense, it um, I think we are accustomed to it. We used to doing meetings. You know, we do we do a, a team conference call uh, every Tuesday. We've done it for years, and that's our sort of uh, pillar of um, of communication throughout the team on, on on a weekly basis. And I guess you get into the. Everybody gets the etiquette of, you know, on, on calls, you've got to speak and then let somebody else speak. And, you know, there's a certain way of kind of optimizing conference calls, isn't there? And trying to keep them relatively short, trying to keep them to, you know, really to the point. So you get get a lot out of them, but you want to be time efficient with them. Because I think, you know, with Zooms and all these types of things, the meetings can tend to drift on. So a meeting that could be done in half an hour takes an hour. And before you know it, you spend your whole day back to back on Zooms or sitting in front of your computer all day, which I think is quite quite, quite a challenge. Because I do think that when you're actually face to face or you you know you're chatting on the phone, etc., you might be able to move around and and um, you know you can you get that little kind of pause. But I think with with the whole Zoom and uh, the video conferencing at the minute, you literally can spend your whole day 
sitting for six or seven hours staring at a small screen and, and not moving much. And I think that's not a that's not a good thing to be doing, I would have thought. Dave, I'm glad you said that because I spoke to a colleague of mine last week in education who's also been a friend of leaders over, over the years, Stuart Ward at the Brit School. And he's told all of his staff at the Brit School, which is which is just a, a wonderful place for education and art and creation and performance and, and success. And he's told all of his staff, he says, don't get too good at this. Because he said sitting sitting in front sitting on, on Zoom calls all day and you can start about nine thirty and before you know it it's four thirty and you haven't actually done very much. And yeah, I'm with you. I, I just don't think everyone's saying this is the new normal. And I'm saying I don't want it to be the new normal because I want to get back out there like you and race and meet people and test the, the mood of your people. So I'm with you on, on that. And can I ask you one further question, David? Is this giving you further time to reflect on, on, on your leadership skills, your coaching skills? Because I've met you before and you're always talking about developing yourself. So is this period of reflection enable you to do that even more? Well, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um... Well, two things, I guess. One is, um, you know, right at the start of this, when we were right at the beginning, we were one of the first sports to actually get a COVID case um, out to race in um, in the Middle East at the tour of the UAE. Uh, really early on, um, our team was there and, and it got locked down, it got cancelled. And um, all of the teams got locked down in, in the hotels over there. And, and what that did, I think it brought to life very quickly the pending kind of um, magnitude of what was about to happen. Um, so we very quickly pulled ourselves out of uh, out of racing. Um, we were one of the first teams to do that. But then I think once once you realise, okay, w- this is what's going to happen, then from a leadership point of view, I think rather than the learning, I think there's a reflection first of, okay, what kind of leadership is going to be required, which would be what people need during this period. So I think that, that was a, there was a, a definite point where I sat down at the beginning and, and thought that through and really thought, okay, what does it look like? What are people going to need? How are we going to approach this? Because, of course, there's a high degree of uncertainty um, involved in this whole situation. So we um, decided to split. Because there's no certainty of the, in, in the situation, which seems to be one of the biggest variables that were needed to be thought about, we decided that actually we would split this whole thing into three phases early on. So we had transition into lockdown as a phase. Um, then we had sort of stable lockdown as a as a separate phase, and we don't know how long that's going to last. So that was a bit open ended in terms of we know it will come to an end, but we don't know how long that'll be. And then you've got a, a transition back into racing as a separate phase. And in the first phase, we felt that um, going, um, you know, people getting home and getting people into the, their home environment with their families as quickly as possible to repatriate everybody. We've got, we've got Colombians and. People all over Europe and, and Tim down in Australia and people in South Africa. and So get everybody home, get everybody with the families first and then let, the, let them settle in and make sure then that, particularly for the riders, they've got the tools necessary to be able to train at home. But when we left it, really, we, left, we decided in that phase, we didn't try and push in terms of, OK, we've got to work, we've got to really push hard, we've got to make the most out of this. We thought we'd just wait and let people get comfortable with their new surroundings and just adapt a little bit to this idea and you know obviously there's a lot going on it's a big change for everybody to be locked down and different countries were doing it at different rates so we just thought we'd be patient and we'd be very supportive we had a high level of communication you know we we made sure that the whole team was in touch with it you know we had a whatsapp group for the entire team where we generated communication generated contact 
made the game a sort of a, a security and a community feel to, to it all. And then as we moved into the uh, lockdown period, we then flipped into phase two. And phase two really for, for me is, is about productivity and getting to work. So everybody's used to being now, they've transitioned into the, the new normal, as everybody likes to call it. And we're ready to go. Uh, we're not racing, but we are working. We are being paid. Um, so the question then becomes, right, how are we going to optimize our period of time in this uh, phase two? And how do we optimize our productivity and, and make sure we, we, we're we working hard um, plus we're creating value for our sponsors because we can't do that by racing, which is what we would normally do. So from a coaching and rider perspective, you know, there was the obviously the conditioning element, the training, how we're going to train. We're very lucky to have um, virtual technology and the ability to train virtually and race virtually. So we thought, actually, how are we going to adapt that into into training regimes? How are we going to how the coach is going to work with the just being able, you know training indoors on a home trainer? What difference does that make, et cetera, et cetera? But it was relatively kind of um, an adjustment of what they would normally be doing. For the rest of the team, um, there was also the question then of big question for me was how do we create value for Ineos without being able to race? What do we do? How can we use our social footprint? How can we use our, our voices? How can we use whatever we do to be able to support our owners and support Ineos given that we can't race? And, and it felt like there was, rather than being one big hit of racing, we could pr- probably, like marginal gains of value creation, if you like. So what are the, what are the instead of death by a, a thousand cuts, it was, um, you know, value by a thousand cuts, if you like. So how, all the little things that we could do that in themselves might not be a great, you know, a big deal or, or too big a thing. But actually, if you amalgamate them all together, then you start to see some value. And that, that's it's off the back of that, actually, that we got involved with this whole um, hand sanitizer project that you may have heard about. So, yeah, that's that's kind of um, that's that's the approach we've taken, really. So now we're in this phase of, right, that, you know, we, we've got our projects. We challenged the, the, each department to come up with projects within their areas, which would give us a how do we deal with the now? Is there anything that we could be doing better right here, right now to help us in this phase? And then, of course, then you've got this kind of idea of how are we going to transition out of this? And how do we transition back into competition? And what are all the things that we could be doing now to make sure that we do that well and hopefully gain a competitive advantage when we get back to racing? Um, and we're in the guts of that now. So we're, we're pushing quite hard at the minute. Everybody's working hard. Yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's been become a pretty productive time in that sense. I'm lucky to be associated with some teams here in the in the UK in in, in rugby and football and cricket, and they're all speaking just as you have there. What can we do to get ready? None of us know what sport will look like in in a few months' time, and we the, the tour is still hope, hopefully going to take place at some point. Do you, have you got any thoughts or any ideas on what what your sport and what sport could look like in when, when it returns? I won't use the word normal, but when. When we get to the final stage of transition, which is sport, maybe with spectators, giving advantage to sponsors again, any idea what sport might look like or how different it could be post this extraordinary situation? Well, I think, I think that's, the, uh, that's the question everybody's debating, I think, isn't it? And I, and, I, and I think, again, if you just tie that back into a leadership perspective, you know, when, we, when we're faced with uncertainty, I think, what do we do? We make assumptions. And, um, and I think in, in our case, we've decided to, you know, we, there are various assumptions that you can make in terms of 
racing is going to come back. We're going to we're going to race on the dates that have been given to, to us already. So the, so the late late uh, late summer through the autumn we'd be racing. There's an assumption that no racing would happen. You know, it could be cancelled altogether, and we won't start till next year. You know, so there are various assumptions, but we decided to work on the assumption that the racing is going to happen. And if you, if you, and we all recognise an assumption, but at least it gives us some clarity against which to plan. So then we can start thinking about, you know, from a again from a leadership point of view, we can start thinking about, okay, well, what about the selection process? What about the which who's going to go? Which riders are going to go into what race? How's that going to work? What about training camps? How are we going to be able to do any altitude? And you start to put together that jigsaw. But I think what's clear in terms of getting back to what we knew before as sport is that that's going to happen in a staged or phased pro, you know um, way it's not we're not going to we're not going to sort of start on a you know sunday night think we're going to wake up on a monday morning and start racing again as it was that's just been completely improbable for that to happen so it's going to be some kind of a staged process and you know i think we've just all got to be ready and contribute um, more than we have maybe in the past with the race organizers with the authorities with the people running the sport with other teams to try and make sure that we're all sharing and exploring the ways that you kind of deal with these two maybe conflicting tensions. One is we want to race as quickly as possible. The other one is we want to be as safe as possible. In those two, there's a there's a tension. You know, they don't go together at the minute, do they? So I think that there's a there's an increased need, I think, for communication with the with the uh, international bodies with the race organizers other teams uh, within our team within the medical community you know, the nutrition guys i think have got a lot to play in it's coming back to how quickly you're going to get back to fitness and how hard can you push but all of that it all needs to be put into the um you know into the thought process of what can we all do to make it um, to make it happen? Basically, moving slightly away from the the, the current situation, and, and you know that all massively made sense in terms of in terms of the planning. But I think energy is really really important. You know how you keep yourself energized, and that's you know very prevalent in the time we're in at the moment. But maybe on the whole, how do you keep yourself refreshed and and yourself energized, especially after a, a sustained sustained period of winning? Is is that is that difficult? Not necessarily in the moment we're in at the moment, but I think across your career or across the time with with Ineos and Scott how have you have you managed to keep fresh it ebbs and flows I think you know I think you know there, there are there are times where it, it feels really you know feel very very tired um, and then there are times where you know I jump out of bed in the morning and feel like a mad band you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I just don't think I don't think anything in life I think we all like to think that the in, we all have the same when we plan forward you know you plan with a so this kind of uh, linear intensity, if you think, because they, it's not what happens in reality. You have ebbs and flows, don't you? You know, and you ride the you ride the good parts, and then you grind your way through the the more challenging parts. But in the main, I've always had the the belief that if you want to work in the, the you know the elite sport or this type of these types of roles. Uh, it's a bit like running on a treadmill. The treadmill set at a certain a certain pace, and when you jump on, you've got to jump on, and you've got to go fast, and you've got to you you, you know you've got to stay on on that treadmill pace. And there's no room for slowing down. If, and if you want to slow down, or you think you want to keep on doing it and take it a little bit easy and slow down a bit, you're going to fall off the back. Yeah. You know, so I think it's a mental choice. You think right, I'm going to go on and jump on this thing, and I'm going to go as hard as I can for as long as I can. And when I think I need to slow down, then I get off. 
I'm not going to do something in the middle. I'm just going to get off. And so that's always been in my mind that, you know, whilst I choose to keep on doing um, these, this type of role, then I'm going to do it absolutely to the best of my ability and I'm absolutely going for it. And the moment I feel that I can't sustain that anymore, then I'm getting off. Mm. I'm not going to try and find a way of doing it, you know, trying to ease myself out of a situation, et cetera, et cetera. So and that, that keeps me, as, as a basic principle, I quite that chimes with me. Mm-hmm. When I'm feeling, you know, if I'm having a few days where I think, oh, okay, this is this is pretty tough, you know, is it time for me to get off? And then I'll have a think about it and I'll go, mm, yeah, maybe. And I'll think about it for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And I think, no, actually, I'm <laughs> off. So if I'm staying here, get going. And it, <laughs> that little kind of mental model works quite well for me. And I think the other thing is, whilst we race the same race, it's, it's uh, the big races or, you know, the same races, that they're actually very different challenges every year. Because the courses are different, you know, the, the competitors are different. But So the riding or racing the Tour de France every year requires a whole new, you know, a, a different set of planning and different ideas because it's just a different puzzle every year. And that, and that keeps it quite, um, quite interesting, I must say. Mm. And, of course, then you've got the different generations, you know. So you've got, um, you know, we've got a, a group of guys and... Chris and Geraint and Matt Bradley and you know there's a group of guys who we've worked with for a long time now you know but they're heading towards the twilight of their career and their challenge is how long can they sustain their levels of performance at the current level and they're massively experienced and they're brilliant professionals I mean they are brilliant professionals and then you underneath you've got these very very young guys you know like Egan Bernal and all that kind of guy and they're in their early 20s and they're on the way up and what they need and where they're at is totally different. I mean, they're to- it's a totally different kind of um, management and coaching challenge with them than it is with, you know, the, the older experienced guys. And, and what they both need is, is very, very different. And you think, actually, can the younger guys learn from the older guys? How, how could you pass in all this experience and knowledge from the older guys to the younger guys without expecting them to, to, to just sort of, it's not their job to teach to spend take time out and teach the younger guys. It's for us to facilitate that in some way or another. And so I think when you step back and look at those challenges, you get a lot of energy from sort of different parts of people, but people of different parts of their journey. Certainly with the young guys coming on, you know, it does give you a lot of, um, I'm sure it's the same as a lot of people say in, in sport in general, you know, they, they provide the energy and, and, and you reflect it back. Dave, can I ask you then, we spoke to Eddie Jones last week for a, for a, for a similar uh, broadcast to this, just just relaxed and, and, and reflecting. And, and we got around to, to discussing the use of language and he, he watches world leaders, he watches political leaders, he's watching scientists at the moment. Because you said that you've got your, your older riders who are in the twilight and you've got the younger generation coming through. How important is the, the, the use of language and still just tapping into people's different psyche and different outlook as, as a head coach, as a leader, because people look to you and you've, you've got to try and say the right thing at the right time. So how do you work on that or does it come naturally to you after so many years of practice, the use of good language? Uh, no, no, I think it's something that I, I, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's very important, I must say. And it's something, uh, it is something you stop and think about and, and you do really think about what do people need at different parts of their career from us in order to be able to optimise. So I see, I see it very much as um, if you take a any performer, there's a you know they perform to a certain level if you if you just ask them to perform. But we've all got that discretionary bit of performance, 
which is that extra little bit that you see every now and again. You think, wow, okay, that's that's the extra, the added on discretionary bit of performance there to optimize. And if you like, our job is to try and get that discretionary bit of performance all the time, you know, to try and get that more often than not and try and, and sort of try and help the, the athletes and, and staff access and bring that to the fore and get to that sort of discretionary performance level uh, on a regular basis. And when you sit back and think about what is it that uh, each individual requires, you recognise it's totally different. You know, whatever's driving each individual, we're all individuals in, in the end, and what they need is totally different. And the language they respond to is different. The uh, the motivators they respond to is different. The triggers they respond to are different. And, of course, their ambitions are different. And in our case, the actual language itself is different. You know, we've got Spanish-speaking guys on a team, English-speaking guys, Italians. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, should we have a single language in a, in a team or is it better to allow people to converse in their mother tongue so you get a better level and nuance of understanding? So they're all factors that I think that, um, that you know, come into, the, into your thinking when you sit down and think about language. And so I like the idea of having a professional language and our, our professional language, our working language is English. But socially, you know, people are socialising and you can socialise you can socialize in whatever language you want. And I think there's a big difference in, in um, you know, when a team says, OK, we're going to be an English speaking team or whatever. I think we've got to be very careful with with what exactly do we mean by that. And, and that's why I differentiate between our professional language and our racing language is English and our social language can be whatever you want it to be. So for the Spanish guys, you know, they, they, they sit, they sat together as a group of, of, of riders and athletes. And, and the worst case scenario is if, you know, you've got a team of, uh, in a team of eight riders, if six are Spanish, uh, you know, mother tongues are Spanish or native Spanish speakers, and you've got an Italian and an, and an English guy, for example, and everybody's speaking in Spanish and the English guy doesn't understand and the Italian guy, guy doesn't quite follow and they feel a little bit excluded. And so it doesn't matter about the actual choice language. The issue is not to exclude somebody. Mm-hmm. And so we very much work on the basis of making sure that everybody's included in conversations and nobody's excluded through the use of language. And that was one of the one of the many reasons I wanted to get you to Brentford one day to because I think we've got fifteen different nationalities and we're very much a, a diverse team, quite Danish, you know, as I was saying to you beforehand. Yeah. And we were doing pretty okay before before this break, and hopefully may do okay after the break. But if I can ask you a cheeky question here, if I may, because deep down you, you're there could be some jealousy of the teams you you lead and manage because they've been absolutely successful in every way, virtually sweeping the board before them. What is it like to manage that team where people get jealous of you? Because we like Manchester City when they were useless. But we're not so keen on now that they win a lot. Is, is it tricky managing a team that everyone deep down is quite jealous of? Yes, I think I think at times, because of course the way that you see it, or that if you're involved in a team, your perspective of a team is potentially very different than the external perspective. And if they line up, then fantastic. But if they don't line up and there's an incongruence there, then sometimes it's you get you can get quite frustrated at, to, at why people can't see what you're seeing. And I guess 
you know, one of the challenges we've had over the years, and and, and this was at um, British Cycling as well as, you know, the Olympic team at British Cycling as well as um, Team Sky and now Team Ineos, was this kind of, um, well, you've just got money, basically, um, and you win everything because you've got more money than anybody else. And um, and, that, and that, that's frustrating because uh, certainly that was the case with the uh, with the Olympic programme for a long time, that people just said, oh, well, you've got more resources than anybody else. And of course, then it became the, the sort of man city of, of cycling when people were, were arguing that we were, um, you know, just going out and buying the best best athletes. When it, when actually, when he did the analysis, if you have a look at what at what point did they enter into the team, you know, the, the, a lot of our riders entered into the team quite young, but we were quite happy to pay for their performance once they'd achieved it. But what we weren't doing was going out and buying all the best riders at you know, just after they won the Tour de France, well, we'll go and buy that rider. And this, this guy just won this, we'll go and buy that rider. You know, we were bringing them in young. And as they achieved, we would we would give them the market value for their for their performances, which meant, of course, that the, the you know, our salary, our budget did increase in that sense. But it was, it was because we were happy to pay for performance, not that we were buying performance. And it's subtle, but it's a very different thing. And the people didn't quite understand that. That was a a source of um, quite a lot of frustration. And um, on the other hand, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question, and we did, you know, in the Tour de France, for example, you know, people, there was a lot of debate at one point about we were killing the race because, you know, we were just strangling it and and we were winning it and and we were sucking the life out of the competition, et cetera, et cetera, and we were like robots, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And of course, the very um, the reason I left home at sort of eighteen, nineteen from Wales to go and live in France, because it was because I wanted to go and win this amazing kind of race that I've found and, and this sport that I found, and um, you know, I was, I was absolutely drawn by this kind of the, the the romanticism of the suffering, and then the tactical kind of these guys going on these long breaks and these exciting, fantastic races. And of course, then you get involved in it, and and you're accused of um, sucking the life out of the sport. It's like the complete antithesis. Well, why you got involved in sport in the first place? You're thinking, shit, what's going on here? You know, and that was um, that's difficult because then you're caught in that, that position of sort of the professional and uh, personal kind of conflict of, well, we, we want to win, and um, we, we 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 find a way. We found a way where we think. We can win and it's pretty effective but it might not be the best um looking kind of uh the most entertaining for the general public but we want to win and so you're caught in that kind of scenario so i think i think over the years you know i've, I've had some a lot of you know very some very nice things said about me over the years and a lot of shit things really <laughs> and you just get to understand after a while you get to understand look it's just we're in the entertainment business and you know, people were there to generate strong emotions, and and they might be good, they might be bad, but that's what that's what people that's what we're doing. You know, generating emotions, creating moments of inspiration. You know, creating moments of being the uh, I don't know the, the pantomime villain and all the rest of it. And 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 you recognise after a while that that's all part and parcel of what we do. And I think you get a lot more perspective with it. And so the you know the older I've got, I've, I've kind of. I think I've found my place, if you like, in my head as, as to how to deal with all of that um, and stop being so angry and frustrated. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of pressure that comes with that as well. And, and just pivoting back to you know what you said about managing the energy, but managing that pressure with 
a big support team and a lot of riders. You know, it's, it's a very complex sport because of the different nationalities, but also the size of staff. And obviously, some of the listeners will be in charge of big teams as well. Are there certain things that you do to make sure that you, you know, support the team and the athletes? Um, you know, it's a lot of people at one time. So as a leader, how, how do you approach that? It's a good point. So there's got to be some, when you've got, when you've got a big team and people at different points of their careers and, and a strong um, staff team who are growing as well, you know, the, the, the staffing team are getting better and better. Um, and so you've got to give them more and more space uh, to operate, otherwise you get frustrated. But you've got, to have your, you've got to have your common denominators, I think. You've got to have your, you know, your non-negotiables, and you've got to be pretty clear about that. And, and, and I think there's an area of, of any team which is, right, guys, this isn't up for grabs. This is, this is the way it is in these certain areas. And you ground the team in that, and that gives you the foundations for everybody to be able to understand, right, this is... This is the, uh, within this team, here are the ground rules, the basics upon which we're going to operate. And if, if you're in, you're in. And if you step out of that, then there's going to be a consequence for that. And of course, then on the, on, on the other hand, you've then got to also um, allow people the ability to flourish and be themselves and show their own traits and personalities. Um, but again, I think you you you've got to bound that. So you've got to create a box, if you like. You've got, there's got to be boundaries to that. So within that box, within that area, you've got the freedom to be who you want to be and, and do things your own way and work in your own style and, and bring your own kind of ideas, etc. But it's got to be within a framework, within a within a certain kind of um, parameter, if you like. And I think if you do those two things, um, then you kind of build a the opportunity where everybody's got the ground rules and understands where we're at and everybody's on the same page in that sense. But you then can uh, let people be individuals because that's what we are. You know, in, in the end, you want people to express their individual flair and their individual brilliance without go, without being reckless or be going, you know, going completely AWOL with anything. Um, and we all want to be aligned. And I think, I think as we move through time, it seems to me more and more apparent that we are all, you know, well, the influence our, of our environments on our behaviour is great. So as, uh, as leaders and managers, I think when you think, OK, well, what kind of environment, you know, what are the environmental factors that impact on us? And if we could manage our environment um, to make it easy to do the hard things, as it were, what if you had to if you're an architect and said right i'm going to create a high performance environment can you actually articulate and say okay well here are the pragmatic the real things that 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 i would do or we could create or manage to be able to create that high performance environment because i think if you create the high performance environment your behavior will adapt to it and so you make it easier for people to perform optimally and you get that discretion level of performance if you put your mind to creating the right environment for it to happen in the first place. Mm. And there's a lot of dials that you can, that you can use um, to make that happen. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty interested in that at the minute, I must say. One final one for me and on the topic of high performance, I've got to ask you about the, the two hour marathon project. Obviously that for you was something quite different, you know, away from cycling. And I, I was lucky enough to be in the room when you, went through the presentation at the, at the PA in November and there was definitely a sparkle in your eye as well because it was you know, a new, new project to get your teeth stuck into. I mean, how much did you enjoy that but also learn from it? You know, it, something something different, something new, but a lot of the same principles, I'm sure. 
Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I mean, it was a terrific project. It was nice insofar as it was a human endeavor. It was. A, it was a barrier, a human barrier. It, you know, it wasn't like winning another event or a, an Olympic medal, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't winning something or winning a tournament. It was a, a human barrier, as it were, and that made it slightly different. And it was in a different sport. So for me personally, I'd always wanted to. You know, I've always you always do wonder whether actually are some of the skills transferable into different sports? Could you do this? Could you do that? So it gave me the opportunity personally to, to be involved in another sport and to look at this kind of this human barrier kind of thing. So that put those two together and I got pretty excited about it. About it. <laughs> then obviously working with uh, Valentine True, who's the, uh, who looks after Elwood and uh, Patrick Sang, his coach and the team around him, you know, they, they were a terrific group, a really, really good bunch of guys. And the, the interesting challenge was the, unlike, um, obviously it's a different sport, but unlike just turning up to a race where the race is organised and you just think, right, what we have to think about is how to compete in this race. With the 159 challenge, you could actually create the, the event yourself and create and go and choose the course. So it brought a whole new new dimension into the performance side, if you like. So rather than um, just being turned up to an event, the, the event was part of the whole thinking. So that we, we all agreed that this was going to be a performance-first project. So anything to do with the event, which was run by and organised by Hugh Brasher, who runs London Marathon, and his, his brilliant team, great, fantastic bunch, and the guys who did the uh, the Vienna Marathon, they, they hooked up. But all the things like uh, crowd control and where do you put the barriers and where do you put all the all the kit for the TV and you know all that kind of stuff you wouldn't really think about. All of a sudden, that had to be all thought through in terms of you can't make it as easy, making it easy and accessible for fans or the the TV trucks or all the kind of operational logistics challenge. That was secondary, and performance had to come first. Mm. And and just small little things like that they all bought in. And then when we started to look at the actual performance side itself, is how how could you go that fast? What are the barriers? And once you really started to delve into the the limitations on on running and marathon running, and then you had to look at the formation of the runners, and you know, is it possible to um, you know what what sort of aerodynamics could you could you bring to the into that performance? The pacing car and the timing and the timing systems and the actual pacing strategy itself where, you know, the running guys and, and um, Tim from our, from our team, uh, Tim Kerrison, uh, got involved and, and Robbie Ketchell, who's a, you know, brilliant guy. Mm. They all combined from different sort of uh, aspects and all came together on this one. It's like a puzzle, basically, uh, to try and solve this puzzle. And, and what was interesting, I think more than anything else, is like any... Like all of these projects, you get that you get a group of people together who haven't worked before from different different backgrounds and different sports, and there's always that first little period of building the relationships and getting people aligned. And there was a bit of to and fro with that to start with, as you'd expect. And there's a bit of bumping and grinding, and it just felt what well, it feels very forced, and people weren't sure. And but then you kind of persevere with that, and you get to that next phase where everybody gets it, the penny drops, people get aligned, and all of a sudden you get this rapid period of development. And wow, that was that was exciting. That was a really, really fun and exciting period when everybody got aligned, and off we went. Yeah, so it was a, it was a terrific project to be involved with. I must say, I mean, very well supported by um, 
by ourselves. And of course, in the middle, uh, in the middle of all of that, I had to take a bit of time out because um, because I had my operation for well, in August, and um, and the team backed me up. And, and Fran Miller, who's the CEO of the team here at Ineos, she's she backed me up there and and um, jumped into that kind of into the role of helping everything uh, progress whilst we were all whilst I was I was out of um, action for a while and. It was just brilliant. It was brilliant. It was great to see everybody get involved and, and, and turn on to it. And, and in the end, I mean, what a performer. Mm-hmm. What a, you know, an incredible athlete and um, exceptional performance. And I really enjoyed seeing all of the, um, the world-class runners, all the guys who came together, who normally compete as individuals against each other, let's face it, in, in, in marathon running, all coming together and running as a team. And that, they enjoyed that, and it was a great thing to see. And, and so, all in all, it was just um, it was a brilliant event and a, a fantastic story. Just three quick questions from me, if I may, to, to conclude. You mentioned there your, your 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 operation, and that was a setback for you because I remember reading the article in the Times when it first when it was first known that you you weren't so well. Mm. Briefly, is it is it changed? Just listen to you this morning. I mean, the, the competition you know is, is alive and well with you because you can't wait to race and compete and and, and you're there to win you're not just there to mm. but did 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 the did the illness did the operation because it you looked as vulnerable as the next person on that day in the times i think it was a, a matt dickinson article uh in yeah, right, yeah. on saturday morning i thought my words are dave relford's ill has <laughs> it changed your has it changed your, your outlook and behavior at all it's been a it's been a it's a funny experience i must say because i realized i was ill um I, I didn't. I didn't realise I was ill until about maybe January, February, properly. At which time we just, you know, Sky were obviously stopping the, as a team, and we were thinking, okay, we want to need to find another team. So it's quite a lot of pressure and stress in that scenario because we didn't know if we got a future or not. And then I, I kept getting these bouts of crazy fatigue, where I'd literally, I'm sitting at my desk now in my, in my office, and I'd, I'd, I'd wake up asleep on my desk. I think, blimey, okay, I need to get a bit more, a few more early nights, you know, because this. <laughs> and I was, and, and it was a strange fatigue. It wasn't, um, it wasn't like a tiredness. It genuinely like deep seated fatigue, and which I found out later, which I never knew. Um, there's a, you know, there's a condition which goes with cancer called cancer fatigue, and I've obviously been suffering from that. And and it's literally like somebody just takes your battery out and you're just dead, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're back up and running again. And it was a very strange experience. And I told um, I told uh, our bus driver actually, Claudio, super guy. I, t- I told him that that I was ill, and, and he, nobody else. I didn't tell anybody else to start with. And so when we were at the races, I just gave him a little nod when I, knew, I could feel his fatigue coming. I thought, God, I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be wiped out in a minute. And he um, at the back of our bus, we got like a, in the very back of our bus, we got these kind of two sort of uh, long sort of sofa seats, if you like, at the end of the back of the bus. And he got a pillow and uh, he got a pillow and a quilt, and he'd get a pillow and a quilt. <laughs> I just nipped down the back and have a little crash there, and then I'd be back up and running again. So it kind of dawned on me that there was there was something um, not right. And I think I went for my MRI, I went for my CT, uh, oh, sorry, to MRI scan, and I kind of didn't really, you know, I didn't really think there was anything that wrong. And then when I sat down there the first time with the with the consultant after that, and he said, "Look, okay, look, you've got you you you've got cancer basically." Um, that knocked me for six. I, I mean, I wasn't expecting that at all. 
And I think you see that sort of, uh, you know, when people talk about that particular moment when you are told you got, you know, something wrong. And that is a difficult thing to deal with. But I decided to to persevere as long as I could. And then uh, the interesting thing was you, you then, you're sort of given a range of options in terms of treatments. And you've got to try and figure out for yourself which one you want. And I found that probably the most difficult uh, in terms of trying to make a decision of which course of treatment should I, or which route should I go down. Um, and that really, I found really difficult. And I'm surrounded by doctors, you know, eight doctors in our team. And um, so I'm very familiar with doctors and, and chatting to medics all the time. And even then I was I was quite struggling on my own. So I, I just thought that anybody who's not familiar with that, that, that must be really, really tough for them. But then I decided to get another doctor and say, look, can you help me make decision? Because I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm being objective. And so I had a, uh, got another guy to come in and help me make decision about what to do. Then I did it. And then I went and I obviously went and had decided to go for a, you know, pretty, um, quite, quite a serious operation and try and sort of eradicate the whole problem at once. That was the, that was the game plan. So, which is what I did. And again, when I came, um, when I came around from that, um, it was a lot, a lot more serious than I thought it was going to be, I must say. But I was determined to get back to full fitness quickly. So within a, you know, a very short period of time, I started walking again, started exercising again, started pushing myself to ride again, and and very quickly kind of got back up and running. And um, so one of the lessons, I think, I think it feels, if I'm honest, uh, and it's, this sounds ridiculous, if you ask me now, what do I think about it? It feels like it never happened. Um, and I don't know that that's denial. I'm just absolutely blocked it out or denying it. But I haven't really changed anything in terms of I haven't gone crazy with my diet or crazy with my health or anything else. If anything, I'm enjoying myself a little bit more and, and maybe having the odd glass of wine or having, you know, eating slightly differently, which is the opposite of what I'd have expected. But I guess the, the, the big lesson is you've got to put everything in perspective because I feel, I feel um, I'm sure like a lot of people do, you know, you just feel great, feel invincible. You feel, you know, gone forever. And then the reality is you can't. <laughs> so you'd recognize that, that this is a finite. This is, we're all in a finite business here. And it is going to come to an end. And um, so I think the important thing is to literally to try and enjoy every day as you can. And, and we're, we're missing a lot of things at the moment, aren't we? You know, we're all in lockdown or we're missing things. And when we do go back to normal, you know, you, you, you will enjoy and you will, will, will appreciate those things. And I think that's the, the most important is to, to appreciate the little things in life on a day-to-day basis and really take them in. And we should stop worrying about the things, you know, most of the things we worry about never happen. Yeah. So we spend all this time worrying about all these things that never actually happen. And I think if we worried less, enjoyed the moment more, um, we'd all be... Uh, in a better place. Dave, I've enjoyed meeting you again. I hope to see you at, at Brentford one day, if at all possible, because we'll enjoy that because it's human interaction. It's it's sharing ideas. But thank you for that stunning answer to a, I'm glad I asked it now. I wasn't going to, but I thought, no, it, it, the moment arrived, so I took it. So thank you for that. But one quick question from me. We've got time to read and, and watch and listen more than we haven't in, in the past during, during this lockdown process. Is there a book, a podcast, a film? Is there something you could just say, go and have a look at that? Because... It entertained me. It made me think, and it was just—it just took my mind off this for a couple of hours. Is there anything out there you'd recommend? Do you know? Do you know what I found myself doing actually is um, uh, bizarrely, I've read less uh, in this time, and um, 
I thought, you know, great, I'll watch a lot of um, movies or whatever else, and I haven't. But what I have done is reached out, connected with um, colleagues from different sports and um, quite a lot of American uh, GMs and coaches um, and various other people in sports and just a little, you know, I got, got together on Zoom and just had a, you know, a half an hour chatting away about various things. And I've done that more than I've ever done before. And I think that's been brilliant because then you, you recognise that actually we're all trying to solve the same problem uh, pretty much in sports anyway. And just getting different ideas and different connections been, um, has been really, really good. And I've enjoyed, you know, just having that extra little bit of time to have the human interaction, albeit through technology, um, rather than sitting and, and reading and, and doing what I potentially normally do. So I think that would be my little bit of learning from this, is spending the time to connect with other people who are homebound as well, who probably got a little bit more time on their hands at a minute and make the most of it through um, through in- increasing human contact and interest um, rather than just um, uh, reading or watching. There are two things. A, thank you for that answer, because you've taken away my guilt because I haven't learned a foreign language yet, learned to play the saxophone or <laughs> dug a new vegetable garden. I thought, is it just me? Because I'm just spending, like you, a lot of time talking to people, ringing up people, Zooming people. It's a new word in the vocabulary. And that helps me get through this because I missed human interaction. But uh, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning. We will meet again one day, I hope. Definitely. Uh, And it's been fascinating talking to you. I mean, I'm going to hand you back to to Matt in a minute. But uh, if you're from Brian Clough country, believe you me, you can't go far wrong with me. So thank you very much for your time this morning. (laughs) And I'll hand you back to Matt. Thank you, Sir Dave. See you soon. See you soon. Yeah, thank you, Sir Dave. Thank you, Michael. That was a lovely little start to our Wednesday. Dave goes without saying, um, more than anything at this time, great to hear you healthy and, and well, especially after you, you know, last year. So pleasure to speak thank to you. you. Stay safe and, and regards to Fran and the rest of the team at, at Team Ineos. Thanks, mate. No problem. Um, that's it for another episode. But if you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast, then you can find more at the Leaders Content Hub as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform. Team Sky were actually one of the first organisations part of the Leaders Performance Institute when we formed a few years ago. And now as Team Ineos, they, so Dave and the team engage with the rest of the world of high performance network on a regular basis. So if you want to do the same, as well as watch video, audio and written content, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to hear more about the home of total high performance. Once again, thank you to John Porch and Luke Whitworth and the team behind the scenes for making this all possible. Hopefully you're all enjoying it. So until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon. 